0: He's got a big job before him, and it's a job that's going to take a a number of years. It would be unwise to bring in a new CEO if they were hypothetically in the middle of a sales process. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily,
1: Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, July 17th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about Disney extending Bob Iger's contract through 2026 and why he apparently seems like the only person who can steer the company through stormy media waters. And we discuss the death of the sports section at the New York Times, which will now rely on The Athletic for its sports coverage. And if you didn't see that coming, well, I've got a terrible contract to ship you before the trade deadline. We'll dig into all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the Powers That Be. If it's Monday, as always, it's Media Monday. I'm joined by John Kelly to talk about all things business of media, and substance of media. John, how you doing, buddy? How was your
0: weekend? I'm good, man. I- I'm happy to be your uh, your Vanna White, as always. <laughs> That's so nice.
1: Hey, I want to ask you about Bob Iger being extended at Disney through 2026. The board at Disney is basically like... This is, this is our guy. This feels safe. Dylan and I chatted about this a little bit on Friday because he's up there in Sun Valley with Iger in his puffer jacket, looking handsome as always. <laughs> What's your take on this extension? Is it just that the Chapek moment was just so tumultuous and the future, you know, with streaming and the content is just so murky that he's the steady hand? I mean, this just just seems like a no-brainer, right?
0: Yeah, I don't think it surprised anybody that this happened. And I I think slightly cynically, I don't think it surprised a lot of people that this announcement came during Sun Valley, because it it certainly put Disney in in the center of the universe. They could have announced this at at any time. I'm sure there were other moments for the contract to get drawn up. It's a combination of, of a number of factors, and you just sort of enumerated them. The challenge is significant, and I have a sense that... While no one thought it was just going to be a two-year run since there was no obvious successor in place, my hunch is that it's being extended through 2026 because everything's on the table and the big ticket tasks in front of Iger, number one being find a future for ESPN, probably with a partner or on its own. Task number two, sell a lot of things, possibly ABC, possibly some of its other pay TV assets these are things that take a long time they take a long time to market them secretly and they take a long time for these deals to close and iger made this announcement in sun valley not just because he likes seeing his name on the press and talking to david faber you know with the mountains Mm -hmm. in the background but because he put a for sale shingle on a lot of assets in the middle of an environment where there are buyers and there are the actual potential acquirers themselves and the bankers too. And I'm sure that, you know, Disney engages bankers all the time to pay consideration to these things. So, so I think, you know, the answer to, to, to part one is that he's got a big job before him and it's a job that's going to take a, a number of years. It would be unwise to bring in a new CEO if they were hypothetically in the middle of a sales process,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or, uh, especially of numerous assets. And then thing two, obviously is, that, is the lack of successor. And it, it's so apparent, you know, this is something that Bill and Matt and Dylan deal with frequently. And I, and I think that You know, we all net out in the same place, which is that Dana Walden appears to be the top creative executive in the Disney fold. I believe she's in Sun Valley with Iger, and I think so is the, the guy who's the head of parks, whose name escapes me at the moment. These do not seem like people to take over this version of Disney. Dana Walden, from all accounts, is a brilliant creative executive. But Bob Iger was the COO, right? You know, people sort of still make fun of that schlocky Ithaca College, weatherman, central Long Island, you know, world that he came from. But he was an operator. You know, he was, a, he was a guy who poured over spreadsheets and learned the creative part of the business as he went through his career. Bob Chapek, I think, was was certainly too much of an operator, right? He, he, I think he had the reputation of a, a guy who kind of ate tuna salad sandwiches at his desk at lunch, pouring over spreadsheets. But the reality is you need to have a bit of both of those skill sets to run Disney. And I think Walden seems... You know, much more on the creative side and the other people you know, seem like they're much more on the park side. And, and certainly they wouldn't give this thing over to a Jason Kalar who's proved to be living in the future. So the two things that Bob Iger came back to Disney to figure out, which was the financial picture, paying down the debt, making sure that the assets had profitable futures and meaningful timeline horizons, and also finding a successor are much bigger tasks than two years could provide. I get the sense – I know the narrative is that Iger is this person who has a healthy ego and was uncomfortable in life outside of Disney. That's probably all true to some extent, but I think that he's in this seat now for an extended duration out of obligation here. I don't think this is a vanity trip anymore. I think this is hard, hard work. And this may not necessarily be how he expected to spend this part of his golden years. I think that he's here out of a significant obligation at this point. I don't think he just wants to see his name in the press.
1: Yeah, I think one thing, one quote that jumped out at me was he he did an interview with Squawk Box. And there's a bunch of parts of that interview I want to ask you about. But he says, quote, when I came back to Disney, one of the things I discovered was that the disruptive forces that have been preying on that business for a while are greater than I thought. And like, he was only gone for a few years. And he's right right. that things have shifted a lot in just a brief amount of time. The way people get content, the downward business pressures on every asset, like especially during the advertising market. I don't know. It's just like, even this guy who is viewed as a business superhero is admitting that like, whoa, this is very tough. Uh, One thing he did say that I want to ask you about too is... As you mentioned, looking at selling a bunch of assets, including maybe ABC. But ESPN has been talked about as a for sale asset possibly over the years. But he said they're not interested in selling ESPN, but they are looking for strategic partners to help
0: sort of lift and distribute ESPN. What does that mean? Sure. Two things. Before we get to the ESPN thing, I agree with you, but I actually think that Iger is eschewing some blame. You're right. He's not been gone for that long. And Chapek may have made a lot of critical errors, uh, largely reputational, too. I mean, just stepped in a bunch of rakes, you know, with the DeSantis thing and the Scott Johansson thing. But a lot of the decisions that Disney's paying the consequence for were unquestionably things that took place during the Iger era. You know, mm-hmm. the scale ramp of these Marvel assets, which is not Come to roost, right? I think that they, they over they may have overproduced some of the superhero content and some of these Star Wars hasn't you know worked in a while and these were you know creative decisions that Iger put into place. Also, Disney Plus started out as a very inexpensive product. They were very focused on getting to a certain number of households and penetration due to huge deals like the being downloadable on every Verizon phone, and the ARPU was low. So there were there were challenges to that business. And there was every indication when Iger was CEO that ESPN was in severe secular decline. Obviously, the the decline has ramped up. But as you say, the decline of pay TV, the the rapid decline of ESPN, these were all obvious when Iger was there. And they've only picked Mm -hmm. up steam. So the mistakes the company's made, it's not as though he was gone for two years and Chebac just destroyed everything. There, There were some things that I think happened on his watch that he's also going to be held accountable for. But on the other point of ESPN, okay, so here is how I imagine it works out. And it's not that dissimilar, actually, to what happened with Warner Brothers Discovery. Disney has a lot of debt, around $50 billion. And ESPN is still a... Profitable asset significantly, you know, it's like when we talk about CNN in decline, we have to remember we're talking about a company that makes, you know, nearly a billion dollars in earnings every yeah. year, but but it's still in decline. ESPN is like that, but only much, much bigger. And so it's a valuable asset for somebody to take on, especially if they want to implement features like sports gaming and, you know, certain maybe uh, niche live rights and and basically turn it into kind of like a sports version of headline news with live programming and micro wagering capabilities. I don't know, or whatever, you know. And then and license it to sports bars in in Tokyo and Shanghai and, and uh, Azerbaijan or something. But <laughs> any version of ESPN that is spun out will include a Disney ownership stake. But the, I can guarantee you, they will set that debt at sea with ESPN, which is exactly what AT and D did when David Zaslav and John Malone said, "Hey, we want to buy." the Time Warner assets, the Warner Media assets, and we want to combine them with our company. And AT&T said, thank God, we never should have bought this thing in the first place. But by the way, you're taking with that tens of billions of dollars in debt to get that off of our balance sheet. And end up being a great deal for uh, AT&T. People forget that the majority of the WD stock is owned by AT&T stockholders. It's a transition that's going to you know, take a long time to play out. So that will happen with ESPN as well. I don't know if the buyer is a private equity company that has a a, a thesis that they want to put into action i don't know if it's comcast that Mm. wants to take this over and says you know what bob you take hulu i'll take espn this is a a perspective that bill shared on the show um i think everything is on the table and and there's a version of this that is fathomable or, or any number of other you know maybe it's a Emirati company that that wants to do it ESPN so phenomenally valuable if you look at you don't have to look any further than live golf to realize how many people want to get into the U.S. sports market whoever gets ESPN they'll want it so badly that they will take a large portion of Disney's debt with it and I think that's going to make it a sweetheart deal for Iger that he can't say no to he loves this asset he doesn't want to get rid of it mm-hmm. and Disney will still be able to own a piece of it but he'll get a lot of debt off his books and I think that's how it's going to turn out
1: before I go to a quick break, I want to ask you, too, he was landing in Sun Valley in his private jet with his extraordinary levels of compensation as the Screen Actors Guild was voting to go on strike. This is the first time, mm-hmm. I think, since 1960? 1960. Yeah, when both the writers and actors were on strike in Hollywood. Fun fact... The Screen Actors Guild at the time was led by noted union supporter Ronald Reagan. And Iger's doing this interview with Squawk Box, and he basically says that, like, the SAG strike is, quote, disturbing and disruptive and that the, the unions are being unrealistic. Again, this is happening as he lands in his private jet in Sun Valley. And one of the signature complaints of the unions during these strikes has been that the these executives have just, like, insane pay levels. Is this, like, a let them eat cake thing for him? Was, like, was it a bad move, do you think, to sort of just poo-poo the little guys and say it's disturbing? Because, I mean, Jesus Christ, like, all of my friends who are writers are just, like, were infuriated by that comment. Yeah. That is damaging, that is a shame, that, like, basically shifting the blame to them.
0: You know, uh, it's, it's this is a, a really tumultuous moment in Hollywood, you know, the, the summer of hell, right? I mean, it, everyone has collectively lost their minds The writers are angry on strike. The actors are angry on strike. The directors are too. The biggest players, you know, they don't have the answers. Zaslav, Roberts, Iger. These guys can't predict the future. What they're saying, and I don't think it's just strategic, is Mm -hmm. this is going to be hard and really, really unpleasant. And, you know, we can't give you everything. And what's also makes it even harder is that we've been on this path for about a decade We just Mm -hmm. didn't quite see it clearly because there were new entrants in the market. Everyone was moving to streaming and they were all Mm -hmm. spending so much money just to get a toehold in streaming that it created this artificial illusion that it was going to be this way forever when in reality, Mm -hmm. all these huge companies were spending enormous amounts of money. It was all debt to create totally unprofitable businesses that Wall Street one day realized they absolutely not only didn't like them, but that these businesses couldn't exist. You know, you think about Paramount Global or Hulu or Comcast, like these are companies that are going to be, won't be independent in in a couple of years, right? Like maybe Comcast buys one or the other, maybe WBD buys one. So Bob Iger doesn't have the answers. He's a very calibrated guy. I think that Zaz and Iger, who are the elder statesmen of media right now, are sending very, very clear signals to the negotiators across the table to say, don't ask for too much. Don't ask for too much because you will not be able to get it. It just isn't going to work. Now you have to divorce from that. that Daz makes hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know what Iger's renegotiated salary makes, but he's—they he's, they didn't bring him back for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for free meals in, in the corporate cafeteria in <laughs> Burbank. Um, so there's there's an optical element that's hard to to get past there. Although they are stewards of you know companies that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, at least in, in Iger's case. But all vectors point to the fact that this is going to be a longer strike than than anyone wants to let on because the big companies and there are fewer of them than there ever have been, they don't have the capital and the leverage to give the creative community what it wants. And that is just gonna be painful. There's no other way to put it. It's just gonna be absolutely atrocious and and awful. All right, John, I'm gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I wanna ask you about the New York
1: Times ending their sports section. Hey, Powers That Be listeners. I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. So trust me on this one, visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. John, the New York Times announced late last week uh, after some pretty public friction (laughs) between the sports writers there and The Athletic, which they acquired last year, that they're ending their sports section and they're going to rely exclusively on The Athletic for their sports coverage. This news also came in tandem with the L.A. Times out here where I live. Mm. Announcing that they're gonna cease publishing several elements that are just have been part of the sports section of a newspaper for as long as newspapers have really been around. Basically game stories, box scores, standings, and like TV times, the things that like you and I grew up reading in the print edition of a newspaper. They're keeping their sports section, but they say they want it to feel like a daily sports magazine, so they're gonna keep the features and the, you know, investigations and the columns, etc. I think you and I probably agree a little bit on this stuff, putting the business challenges aside here. Most people don't go to the sports section these days to see who won the, you know, Reds Brewers game last <laughs> night. And I, I should say uh, in the current season, the Reds are usually winning these games for a uh, first time in a while. Go Ellie De La Cruz.
0: Yeah, De La Cruz is amazing.
1: Dude, just love the guy. To Katie's frustration, I've already ordered two Ellie de la Cruz uh, t-shirts uh, for the summer. <laughs> what do you make, though, of the business decision at the New York Times, though, to just basically say bye-bye to the sports section and, and just rely on the athletic?
0: A, a lot of layers of this onion for me, uh, it's funny, I, I was actually offered the New York Times deputy sports editor job like 15 years ago, um, huh. and I remember, like I thought about it for two seconds, and I remember having lunch with this guy in the 14th floor of the Times building, and he said, what would you do with it? And I said, oh, boy, you know, I'd get rid of the box scores. I'd get rid of all the columnists. I'd rearrange it so that it was based on sort of uh, different kinds of sports obsessions that are um, mm-hmm. more niche and, and more in line with what the fandom wants rather than what's been done historically. And he said, you know, what, actually, maybe uh, this isn't the right job for you. <laughs> and, the, and the meeting ended uh, very, very abruptly. So what's interesting about this to me is a couple of things. First of all, I think all of the changes that happen in media, the big ones, start in sports, maybe because the fandoms are the strongest. And the New York Times loved the sports section. It means something to the Salzburgers. It means something to that generation on the masthead. And over years, they had tried to basically take away investment by nationalizing it, by making it more about trend coverage, by moving writers off the desk and moving them to larger investigations, things like steroids and concussions and, and doing meaningful work. But they ceded ground in the end to newcomers you know, like The Athletic, which among other things, just figured out how to make sports businesses subscription worthy. You know, they the athletic focuses on local fandoms, right? It it, it doesn't just focus on mm-hmm. sports, which could mean, you know, Frank DeFord writing or trend pieces on pickleball, which is sort of what the, t- the Times read into. You know, the, the athletic said, oh, no, no, there are like... <laughs> you know, hundreds of thousands of people who care about the Denver Nuggets. Like, let's get people who write about them and build a growth marketing plan there. Let's do it for the Buffalo Sabres. Let's do it for the Golden State Warriors. Let's do it for, in your case, the Cincinnati Reds and the Bengals. And and that worked. And that turned out to be the formula, both editorially and operationally, that worked for subscription media. So the Times bought the athletic like for $550 million. If you didn't see this coming, you're crazy, right? It, it was going to yeah. happen from the minute that deal closed. But what's interesting to me is two things. First of all, um, they're not laying anyone off, which is amazing. It shows you how powerful the um, the Times' balance sheet must be. I think the, the Athletic was about half mm-hmm. the, uh, the cash in the balance sheet. So they're, they feel really good about where they are. And second of all, the Athletic, which had around a million paying subs at the time of the deal, and I heard from people that they were soft subs. That a lot of them were... Paying between a dollar and ten dollars, and that there was a lot of arbitrage, meaning a lot of brief subs who were churning out, being replaced by a marketing efficiency that brought in new subs in. Um, And and it was really just, you know, rinse and repeat. It's up to three million now. So either that person was wrong, or I was wrong, or the Times's scale and scope and performance marketing engine is so good that it can triple. The athletics' core mm. success metric in a year. Um, I know the athletics not profitable as an entity, but that's there are a lot of levers they can pull to to get there. And I'm not nostalgic about any of this. Like when I heard this happening, it actually made me think ahead to what's going to happen one day when we find out that. ABC News merges with NBC News, you know, when they're both under a, a corporate entity. And when one production company merges with another or one movie studio with another. And we say, yeah, this meant something, but it's just not how people consume things anymore. And why do you have two different sports divisions inside the same media company? Makes zero sense. So good for the times no for having sense. the guts yeah. to do something unpopular. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing I'm nostalgic
1: for isn't like, oh, I wish we could go back to the way things used to be in media when you could, you know, we didn't have these screens corrupting our day and you could sit and leisurely read. But like a lot of people in newsrooms still (laughs) somehow think like that. But I just, you know, on a personal level, I'm nostalgic for just the fact that, I mean, the reason I wanted to get into journalism was I grew up reading like Norman Mailer writing about boxing and Frank DeFord, like you mentioned, like Halberstam, who inspired the name for this very podcast, Dick Schaap and Thomas Boswell and all that. You know, I just like loved sports writing and I wanted to do that in a long form sense, which, which, by the way, still does exist, although it's been a little bit hollowed out. It's harder to do that these days. But yeah, like I... Don't think that people follow the news that way anymore. And I don't think people seek out necessarily that kind of writing, like it or not, anymore. And also, by the way, dude, like, speaking of ESPN, like, sports journalism these days, it's it's a lot like politics. Like, the amount of really great profile writers Mm -hmm. and magazine pieces about politics has diminished greatly. And now sports journalism, like politics, is about, like, takes and yelling and commentary and punditry and just, like... like, it's not great. It sucks, but we just don't live in those times anymore. And the other note here, just to finish this out on the New York times is like, they don't cover local sports. Like the LA times covers the Dodgers and the Kings and the Lakers and the Clippers, blah, 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 UCLA, whatever. The New York times barely covers like New York sports. If you live in New York and you care about New York sports and you're like riding the subway, like you read like Newsday or the post, you know, like that's where you get the hard boiled sports coverage. And great sports writing, culture, commentary, investigations at the New York Times can also just be folded into other sections of the newspaper at this point, because there's no reason to like pull out the New York Times sports section or like go to that dedicated homepage necessarily anymore. Because other than the, the hardcore news stuff at the New York Times, the rest of the Times is a lifestyle and culture brand and they write trend pieces yeah, and is. they increasingly write less commodity news. They're not printing AP wires. It's just more of a outside of the news, like a lot of commentary and trend pieces. And I think sports can just sort of like go into that. Yeah. Anyway, John, thanks for joining me Um, again. Apologies to uh, powers that be listeners who hate sports, but John and I are going to talk about it, whether you like it or not. Have a good week, dude. All right, man. I'll see you in Slack. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder, the powers that be is the official podcast of puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.